thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. We're going to begin tonight the study of the second part of the book of Revelation. This is where things get really interesting. Wings and beasts and, and all sorts of strange things happen. I'm sure many of you have heard different kind of interpretation about this book. The Russians aligning themselves with China, attacking Israel. The end of the world is coming tomorrow. Is, it, is that what it is all about? Or is it about something entirely different? There are some important questions we left unanswered from the study of the first part. The first part, as you recall, was about the Lord being present among the seven churches and addressing them those letters. We've seen how every one of those letters follow the structure of the covenant. In each of the letters, the Lord begins by introducing himself. He's the strong one. He is the one that sets the covenant out. And then brings about a historical reminder of the state of that particular church. Addresses some of the issues that he sees who are very important. And sets before that church blessings and curses. And that was done seven times. We've looked at the historical context of each of those churches. We understood what they were facing, the difficulties they had to overcome. But in all of that, there's a sort of a larger question looming. Why? What's the point? What's the point of this whole big section? And how does it relate to what we're going to read tonight? What's the connection? As a matter of fact, there are a number of theologians... Catholics, nonetheless, who will tell you that there aren't really connections between these two parts. The first one we saw and the second one we are about to read. Those seems to be two separate visions that happened at different times and they were kind of edited and then put together. Really? Is that so? On the surface, it's, it looks like it. I mean, what's the connection? Let's take a look. Hopefully you brought your, your Bible with you, because tonight of all nights you're going to need it. Let's go to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. And we're going to focus on chapter 4 specifically, although this particular section, which I titled Heavenly Warnings, 
run from chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 7, verse 17. After this I looked, and lo, in heaven an open door, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up hither, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and lo, a throne stood in, the, in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there appeared like jasper and carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that looked like an emerald. Round the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clad in white garments with golden crowns upon their heads. From the throne issue flashes of lightning and voices and peals of thunder. And before the throne burned seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there is, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all round and within. And day and night they never cease to sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, Worthy art thou, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst created, create all things, and by thy will they existed and were created. We will delve into those details, but overall there is a very simple question we need to ask ourselves. What's the connection? What's the connection, the first vision, where John turns around and sees the Lord among the seven lampstands, holding the seven stars, a double-edged sword issuing forth from his mouth, and this. What I'm going to propose to you, and we will see if my explanation holds, that the key to understand those two parts and their relationship and to see where they're both essential and necessary is found only in the liturgy. The liturgy will illuminate these two parts and these two parts will illuminate the liturgy. Let's try to understand why I'm saying what I'm saying. Let me go back to the first vision. Christ is standing among the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches. One thing I did not cover back then, because I wanted to cover it now, has to do with this remarkable fact. And this fact was stated over and over again, but we never really stopped to look at it up close. Christ, God, is walking among, is standing among the seven lampstands. He is standing among the seven churches. You remember seven is the sign of the covenant, it is totality, therefore it isn't just those seven particular churches, but really all the churches. What does that imply? It implies that God is in the midst of his people. 
Doesn't it? Right? And, furthermore, in the midst of his people on earth. Right? Because those seven churches were churches on earth. This is not about a heavenly reality. This is about an earthly reality. We've heard it so many times that God is among us, that God is with us, that we don't realize how remarkable this is. Think in terms of Scripture. When was the last time before this vision that we saw God walking amongst His people? Yes, the public life of Christ. Very good. Before that, Genesis. Now, during the public ministry, Christ veiled his nature. Correct? You'd look at him, you'd see an ordinary man. You didn't see God. The senses didn't tell you this is God. The senses told you this is a man. Isn't he the son of Mary and Joseph? The carpenter, as his own folks said. Therefore, the only other time where God, revealing his nature, walked among his people is where? Genesis. Genesis. Okay. So, what does that suggest about those seven churches? What are they in the eyes of God? Eden. The new garden. I don't have time to, to study the liturgy of Eden. But basically, God walks amongst his people and talks to them face to face. He did that in Genesis, and he's doing this right now. This suggests something about the nature of the church and about the liturgy. Now, when God walked in Eden, did God leave heaven? Did he? No, he didn't. As a matter of fact, what is heaven? Heaven is where God is, right? So when God walked in Eden, what happened? Heaven came on earth, didn't it? Didn't it? Heaven on earth. Heaven on earth. Alright? So, when Jesus Christ, being glorified, appears to John walking among the churches... He's bringing heaven on earth. What does that suggest? It suggests that the realities of heaven are being represented on earth and they must be harmonized. The realities of heaven are represented on earth and whatever we see on earth being true is true in heaven. Because God is one and the truth is one. You're following me? So if... If my proposition, which is the following, the first part presents to us the church militant. The second part presents to us the church victorious. And the two together present to us the church. If this interpretation works, then... It must be that there is correspondence between the two visions. That beneath seemingly 
disparate or different images, the same reality emerges. There ought to be some correspondence between the two, don't you think? Otherwise, what I'm talking about would be contradicted by the text. If the first part presents to us a reality about God that is not present in the second part, then the two are not connected. If they are connected, we ought to be able to follow from one to the other, don't you think? Before we look at that a little bit closely, or closer, there is another point I would like to underscore. Revelation is not so much about the divine. It isn't just about God in heaven. Revelation is not a book describing to us the life of the Trinity in heaven. That is not what it is. Revelation is not a book about the beatific vision. Because clearly no word could describe the beatific vision. Right? It's ineffable. It is indescribable with our language. So whatever description we have here is not about the beatific vision. Then what is it, what is it about? It is about specifically the humanity of Jesus Christ. We've seen that underscored in the first part because we see Christ saying, I received power and dominion from my God. He uses that language. And it's unsettling at first because we, we say, well, well, Jesus is God. How come he says, I received power and dominion from my God? Well, what he's underscoring is his victory as the God-man. In Revelation, it is humanity that is, triumph that is triumphant. It is humanity in the person of Jesus Christ who is claiming back what Adam lost. Adam lost the kingdom. That kingdom must be claimed by a man. A perfect man. The God-man Jesus Christ. Keep that in mind as we go through this. By the way, this idea about harmony between the two parts representing for us one coherent and cohesive view of the church is supported by scripture because of the language that St. Paul uses. He speaks of what? One body. The body of Christ. We all belong to the body of Christ. We here and those who are up in heaven and in purgatory. We all belong to this one body. There is harmony in heaven and on earth. Just we don't see it, but it is there. Could it be, therefore, that what we saw so far, the first vision, underscoring the presence of Christ in the church on earth, and the second vision, underscoring the church in heaven? Could that be it? Well, before we see why that could be it, let's think about the consequences of this. What would that give us as far as the text is concerned? Well, number one, it unifies both parts, doesn't it? If indeed this was true, if this explanation holds, that it unifies both parts. It tells you why part number one and part number two work together. It also tells you that they're both necessary. If you only had part number one, meaning Christ on earth among the church, you'd be missing the other part. 
the church triumphant. If you only had the church triumphant up in heaven, you'd be missing the first part. Okay? Why? Let's take it one step further. Why would then God wish to reveal to us this? What would be the purpose of that? Assuming what I said is true, which I have not shown you yet, but assuming it's true, why would God want to do such a thing? What's the purpose? What do we gain out of that? So Christ comes and says, okay, John, let me show you. First on earth, I am in the churches, in all the churches. I know exactly what each of them is going through, and I'm setting before you life and death. Choose. Part number two, let me show you now how that same reality, the same, not a different, that's the key. How that same reality on earth is seen from heaven. I'm just going to switch perspective now and show you the same reality, not a different one, from heaven. Come up here, John, let me show you. What I showed you in the first part, I'm going to show you again. The same thing, but seen from heaven. The first was seen from earth. The second is seen from heaven. That's the church. I'm, I'm showing you both sides. What, what do we gain out of this? We'll say, well, yeah, okay, cool, cool, Lord, that's great. That, that's very nice. But then what? How does that impact us? How does that impact our lives? How does that change things for us? How does that bring hope to all these people who are suffering from persecution? Remember, that was the constant theme in the first part. They're suffering from persecution. They're under in a dire strait. Most of the churches, with a couple exceptions. Why would that be important to them? The answer would then be the liturgy. Mass. Huh. Why would Mass be important? Because Mass is nothing short than the reign of Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. Therefore, if that is indeed the case, if Mass is the reign of Christ on earth, in heaven and on earth, it must follow that the way Christ furthers his kingdom, the way Christ judges the world, is through Mass. Now this might seem like a theoretical statement until you start to realize the import for all of us. If this is indeed a heavenly reality, then it means that in Mass, each and every one of us has access to the heavenly throne. Each and every one of us has access to the heavenly throne. What does that mean? What, what does that mean? That means that anything that we need for, we ask for. Anything that is good for us will be given. That's the avenue. That's the channel. That's the way we further his kingdom. 
That's what makes us powerful. Really powerful. The mess. Most of us have a hard time relating to this, those words because most of us have a hard time leaving the Mass. And the purpose of this book then is to help us understand the heavenly reality of the liturgy and the Church. So that we can exercise the power that is given to us. The power of sonship. We become sons, daughters and sons of God the Most High and in Mass we approach the heavenly throne and put our petitions before that throne and answer is given. Never before was that possible. Not in a Jewish temple, not in any temple. Nowhere else is it possible. We take it for granted and we don't know how to utilize it because we don't know how to pray. But if you really try to focus and understand, I am coming to church on Sunday, and therefore I belong to part one, to the earthly reality. Christ is present, as he described it. And what the book of Revelation is doing for me is revealing to me the heavenly reality of that which I am living here. And by faith, by faith, I can see what eyes cannot see. And I can ask what I would not have hoped for before. Nor is it more evident than when we get to the petitions. The petitions are one of the most important moments in, in the liturgy. If what I said is true, then the petitions are this moment in the liturgy where we, being present before the throne of God, ask our Father for what we need. And how do the petition run in church usually? Like sports news. Actually, no, worse. If it was sports news, we'll pay a little bit more attention. Lord, hear our prayers. Lord, hear our prayers. Lord, hear our prayers. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Most of us feel disconnected from the petitions. Most of them are so vague and general, right? And abstract that are, first of all, completely disconnected. Like, oftentimes I'm wondering if God is not scratching his head. What did they ask for right now? <laughs> what was that they said? You know? They must be wondering sometimes in heaven. Well, maybe not God, but at least St. Peter. <laughs> what, what, what was that about? But, but beyond that, we, as faithful, kind of take the petition as the moment we can relax. You know, that, that's you know, sort of a low point in Mass. We can just sit down and relax. All we have to say is, you know, in, in the Maronite liturgy, Lord have mercy, and in the Latin rite, um, Lord hear our prayer. And then we can kind of tune out and maybe do something else. What does that tell you? We don't understand. We're not convicted in our hearts. We don't realize. We don't realize. That's what I'm 
proposing that these two parts do. Part one and part two. And we are going to expand on that as we move forward because I'm going to show you how mass judges the world. Judgment, covenantal judgment on the world happens through mass. And by judgment, I don't necessarily only mean curses. I mean blessings. Both flow from the mass. And this book is going to show us that precisely. Here's an, one, more, one, more very, one more point I wish to make, and that point is very important. Before I show you why I, I'm thinking this way. We tend to think, we tend to think of the church as sort of subservient to Christ, under Christ, submitting to Christ. We tend to, 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 to kind of put Christ first and then the church. Most of us think this way. Right? Not Christ. He doesn't. For Christ, the church is first. He's second. This might shock some of you. But if, his, if anything can be learned from his life on earth, it is this. What does St. Paul tell us about the relationship between a husband and a wife? What is a husband to do? And he died on the cross for her. What is he doing? Is he putting, is he putting himself first? No. The church is first. You get it? In Christ's mind, the church is first. Not because he's lacking in anything. He isn't. It is so because he loves her. You get it? It's out of love. Now, what does that mean? Well, that, you know, church is first, Christ is first, who cares? Really? Let me show you what that means. You remember that time when he went to the temple all by himself? Hmm? And then Our Lady and St. Joseph went up and found him there. And they had this little conversation with him. Son, why have you done this to us? Behold, your father and I were looking for you, sorrowing. And our Lord answered and said, What were you looking for me? Did you not know that I should be in my father's house? And St. Luke says, And they did not understand what he said. But Mary treasured all these things in her heart, and we can believe that St. Joseph did the same. And then St. Luke adds something rather seemingly very simple, and we tend to gloss over it, but it has profound implication what we're talking about. And St. Luke adds, it's chapter 1, verse 51, if I can get my papers in order. 251, in chapter 2, verse 51, he adds, and he came down with them, he came down with them and was obedient to them. Now, a superficial reading of that text suggests, oh, well, of course, I mean, he did a little prank, so he disobeyed them, and then we said, well, you're not going to do it anymore. But that's heretical. Christ can't do pranks. God is not about pranks. He is the giver of the law. He's the one who said, honor your father and mother. He's not to do pranks. So therefore, we know he did not disobey 
in a real sense. In other words, there's honoring. He was honoring them by being in a temple, in reality. Because he was showing himself for who he was, the Son of God, and they are his parents. What more of an honor do you want? Sometimes kids have to do that. They have to kind of disobey their parents in order to bestow honor on them. Saint Charbel is a good example. He had to run to the monastery and become a monk and other saints like him who, Saint Francis, disobeyed their parents, but then that quote-unquote disobedience ends up bringing honor to their parents. So then why does he say he was obedient to them if he didn't disobey in the first place? And he went down with them. It is because our Lord wished to subject his ministry on earth to the will of his parents. He was going to wait for the cue for him to begin his public ministry from them. He put them first by being subject to them, by obeying them. He put them first out of love. And when did he get that cue? Cana. And when he said, woman, what is this to you and me? My hour has not yet come. She was basically saying, yes, son, it has. He waited for that signal from his mother to begin his public ministry. Just as he waited for the signal from his heavenly father to pick Peter. You see how he works? He doesn't try to put himself first. He's second, he's third, and he's last, out of love. He told his disciples the same thing. The greatest among you must be last. So Christ places his church first. Why am I making such a big deal out of this? Because of the council of Jerusalem. You see, the council of Jerusalem is binding Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. It was binding. Still binding. And Christ waited for that council to occur, and then he took action. The church comes first. You understand? The ch- we sit here and we say, well, God, why don't you do this? And, and why don't you do that? And, And we focus our attention, Christ and me, Christ and me, Christ and me. Right? And he's looking at us and saying, go to your mother. Go talk to your mother. I do that all the time. Dad, can we do it? Go ask your mom. Why? I'm not going to let a kid come to me and circumvent the authority of my my wife. There's no way they're going to get away with it. You think Christ is going to answer our prayer? When we separate ourselves from his wife, good luck. You need something? Go to your mom. Let me quote to you from an encyclical of Pope Leo XIII. In this encyclical, on the evils afflicting modern society, the ency- pardon? This was written April 21st, 1878. Here's what he says. So he's listing a whole list of, um, a whole truckload of evil that we would completely connect with. 
he says, from the very beginning of our pontificate, the sad sight had presented, has presented itself to us of the evils by which the human race is oppressed on every side. The widespread, widespread subversion of the primary truths on which, as on its foundations, human society is based. The obstinacy of mind that will not brook any authority, however lawful. The endless sources of disagreement, whence arrives civil strife and ruthless war and bloodshed. The contempt of law, which molds characters and is the shield of righteousness. The insatiable craving for things perishable, with complete forgetfulness of things eternal. Leading up to the desperate madness whereby so many wretched beings in all directions scruple not to lay violent hands upon themselves. The reckless mismanagement, waste, and misappropriation of the public funds. Huh. 1878. Okay. The shamelessness of those who, full of treachery, make semblance of being champions of country, of freedom, and every kind of right. In fine, the deadly kind of plague which infects society in its inmost recesses, allowing it not, no respite, and foreboding ever fresh disturbances and final disaster. Now, the source of these evils lies chiefly, we are convinced, in this, that the holy and venerable authority of the church, which in God's name rules mankind, upholding and defending all, all lawful authority, has been despised and set aside. The church. We have to reorient our understanding of the faith around the church. No church, no Christ. No church, no Christ. This is what the book of Revelation is revealing. That through the church, by the church, in the church, Christ brings about his kingdom and salvation to mankind. And we have access to the throne of God. Now let me put all this together before I show you how this works. Part 1 maps to the liturgy of the word. Part 1, which we read, maps to the liturgy of the word. John is in exile on Patmos. What does that mean? He is pulled out of the world and placed in a place that is barren of all the material attraction. That is an image of the church. When we come to the church, we exile ourselves from the world. We are leaving the world of Adam to enter into the world of Jesus, the new Adam. When we are here during the liturgy of the word, Christ manifests himself to us in ways that are above our ability to understand. The vision that Christ gave of himself is incomprehensible. Reason alone cannot grasp it. Do you understand? And the point of it, therefore, is that you must rely on the faculty of faith when you step into the church. Now, I am not saying turn off your reason and just work with faith. Faith builds on reason. Faith extends and uses reason to its utmost limit. But it goes beyond it. During the liturgy of the word, we have Christ 
speaking the truth to us through the readings and then the homily. What did Christ do effectively for those seven churches if you think about it? There were homilies. If you want to know what a homily is supposed to be, go back and read those letters. That is the purpose of those letters. It's a homily. What is the purpose of the homily? The purpose of the homily is to expound on Scripture for the benefit of those who listen, so that they may improve their moral lives and therefore be ready for the liturgy of the Eucharist. That's what he does. That's what every priest should be doing. Christ said, I know what you're going through. The priest is supposed to know what his people are going through. The liturgy, the homily can't be on generalities. It has to be very specific about problems that addresses their concern the people living in the parish. The priest can't say what well, he can, but it's not the same. Christ would not do that. Christ did not say in general, well, you know, uh, avoid sin. Be good to your neighbor. Love one another. Be nice. He didn't say that. He was extremely specific. He spoke of this Jezebel. He spoke of this Balaam, of the Nicolaitans. Those who are not upholding the faith. He told them their good points and their bad points. And he told them what they had to do to correct it. That's the role of the homily. That's what's supposed to happen. We have to accept that. The priest must take on that role. Do you understand? Then, the second part is the introduction. It's a long introduction, but it's an introduction to the liturgy of the Eucharist. I'm going to show you that. Culminating into what? The wedding feast of the Lamb. That's when we receive the Lord. During the liturgy of the Eucharist, really interesting thing happens in heaven. There is thunder and lightning and mountains being thrown down and then blood and fire and a whole bunch of other things happen. What does that suggest? What is that telling you? When we celebrate the liturgy of the Eucharist, what is going on? It isn't just about Christ coming down for me. See how we fall back into that? Me, 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 and, and Jesus, and everybody else is out of the picture. That's not it. It is about Christ coming down for us and the whole world. Those people out there who don't go to Mass are affected by that Eucharist. That's what it's showing us. During the liturgy of the Eucharist, Judgment, curses, and blessing are imparted on the world. That is how, sacramentally, Christ is affecting his kingdom. There's no need right now, when we look at all the woes and problems out there in the world, we don't need Christ to come back to fix it. That's almost an insult. We have the church. We have the church. Through the church, we can fix it. But we don't think this way. Ah, how can we fix it? I'll show you how. That's the whole point of the book of Revelation. is to precisely show us the pattern. Now I hope that you 
are starting to see why this book is important. Far beyond any notion of, okay, when is he coming back, and uh, is he talking about the end of the world, and it's much more important than that. It is about our lives today, as it was back then. Now, I, now that I gave you an overview, I'm going to repeat that over and over again, because I am, I am conscious of the fact that what I just told you is not obvious. It doesn't come naturally. It requires repetition and prayer. But I hope to be able to help you by showing you how the texts support this view. What I would like to do first is take a look at the vision of our Lord in the first part and what I just read to you in the second part. Now try to follow with me in, in Scripture if you can. I'm going to try and do it slowly. Um, You might think that the first vision of our Lord and the second are absolutely unrelated, but as a matter of fact, they are mirrors of each other. I'll show you why. Verse, chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden girdle round his breast. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth issued a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. First thing I want to point out to you is the parallelism between many of these elements in this passage and chapter 4. Seven golden lampstands, that's in 112, and we see the seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God in 4.5. In 113a, there is in the midst of them one like the Son of Man. In 4.2b, there is a throne and one sitting on the throne. Christ on earth is God, true man and true God, and has the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In heaven, in this particular view, we have God the Father. On earth, Christ has the traits of his Father. Why? His hair is white as wool. And from the vision of Daniel in chapter 7, which we're going to see in that vision, the Ancient of Days, which is sitting on the throne, has also the same characteristics, white as wool. Right? So there's a correspondence between Christ being present on earth in the midst of, the, of, those, of those torches and the throne of heaven where his Father is sitting. I and my Father are one. 113b, long robe and golden girdle around his breast. The robe is white, it's a long robe, and there's a golden girdle. In heaven, what do we have? We have the elders dressed in white with a golden crown. Who are those elders? There's been much ink spilled over these elders and much explanation given. If you follow this explanation that I'm giving you today, those elders, the 24 of them, are the totality 
of all the priests, actually the bishops, offering Mass. This is the church offering Mass. I told you it's the same reality on earth and in heaven, not two different realities. Christ on earth is the high priest, the only priest. But in heaven, seen from heaven, what you see is a vision of the church before the throne of God. And I'll show you why I think those elders are bishops. I'll show you why in a minute. His head and his... Okay, we've seen that. In 114b, eyes like a flame of fire. In 4.5, from the throne issues flashes of lightning. There's a correspondence between Christ on earth and the throne of God the Father in heaven. His feet are like burnished bronze, and before the throne there's a sea of crystal. What's the connection? In a temple of Jerusalem, there was a grand laver filled with water made with bronze. That was the grand laver in which the priests were to wash his feet, and they spoke of it as the sea. In 115b, voice like the sound of many waters, in 4.5b, the voices and peal of thunder. In 116a, he held the seven stars, which are, which are the angels, as he explains it, of the churches. And in 4.6b to 4.7, we have the four living creatures, which represent the angels ordering the cosmos. If you look at, those, at the correspondence of imagery with different symbolism, you will see that on earth we have Christ representing Christ as a high priest, the Son of the Father, God, true God, having the angel of his service, and in the midst of his church. And in heaven, we have the throne of God the Father, the angels around him, the priests of the church adoring him, and many of the same elements in the image appear in both cases. What does that indicate to us is that we have a correspondence of imagery representing the same reality viewed from two, two perspectives. One is from heaven, the other is from earth. So in that vision in chapter 4, those four creatures with the four faces represent effectively four major constellations in the zodiac. Right? They represent four the major constellation in the zodiac, essentially going clockwise. And the idea, therefore, is that they are representing the universe. Not just the stars, but they represent the angelic beings who are in charge of the universe. And if you note in chapter 4, you see the following. Round the throne were the, 24, were the 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. And then, these living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes. What is, it, what is the implication of being full of eyes? It's wisdom. Eyes represent wisdom. It's the wisdom of God. Right? And they see everything. Therefore, it's the all-encompassing ministry of the angels in the universe. 
Notice in the picture, you have the throne first, then the 24 elders, and the angels on the outside. Around all of them. The elders are inside. The liturgy of the new covenant trumps the liturgy of the old covenant. It actually integrates it. It's one. And then what do you have? You have those angels there for giving glory to God with the sanctus. Holy, holy, holy. That's a, that's a, that's a true meaning. It's a very profound insight in, in, uh, in stating that they represent the four evangelists. But they, it, the first meaning would be the constellations. Primarily because St. John is standing right there, and unless he's bilocating as one of those creatures and himself, it kind of looks a little bit odd. It's a secondary meaning that were applied by the fathers, but the primary meaning is the constellations. Um, 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 you know, Libra, the ox, those, I, I, I'll go back and get you the names of the four constellations and how they actually work clockwise. All right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him. Alright? So the sanctus is sung. These elders fall down, take out their crown, put it before him and worship him. You with me? Okay. I'd like you to follow me with the first Eucharistic prayer. That's taken from the Latin, Latin rite. The first Eucharistic prayer. When a bishop goes up to the altar, up to that point, what is he wearing? What does he do? Right when the sun to the sun. Takes it off. Huh. Coincidence? I think not. What is this liturgy we just saw in heaven? It's a liturgy of creation. The four angels representing the four corners of the world, the totality of all that is created, the entire cosmos, gives glory to God. And whenever they do, the elders take their crown and then bow before him, right? Now, listen carefully to this first Eucharistic prayer. I'm sure many of you have heard it many, many times, but I want you to listen carefully to the words. I want you to see the liturgy of creation in it. First of all, the Lord be with you, and we also all answer, and also with you, right? Then, strangely enough, he says, lift up your hearts. Why does he say it there? Why does he ask us to lift up our hearts right then? Let me ask this question. What happened to John? To John? Right before this? Where was he lifted up to? Huh. Coincidence? I think not. You understand the lifting up of your hearts? He's in, we are invited up to heaven. That's the lifting up of your hearts. We think lift up your hearts means be cheerful. You know, stand up, pump some muscle, look good. We don't get it. Lift up your hearts. What does that mean? What, what does that mean to lift your hearts up? We're lifted up to the Lord. What does that mean? It feels good, doesn't it? This is sort of a warm fuzzy. 
But we're clueless. We don't understand. How could you effectively call upon the Lord and ask Him something when you don't understand? We're like folks who enter into the hall of the king. The king is seated on the throne, and guess what? We are bumping into the walls. We don't know how to get there. And we're parroting something that we've been asked to, told, told to say. Do you think he's going to answer our prayer? If we dare call this a prayer? Really? Would you? Your son is coming to you and he wants something from you and instead he keeps on bumping into the wall and then he keeps repeating, Dad, give me, a, give me a card. Point. Dad, give me a card. Point. Would you give him a card? Would you say, Son, I'm here. Hello? Hello? Heaven to earth, I'm here. You understand why this book is important? That's the blueprint. Lift up your heart. That's what he tells us first. Meaning what? I'm inviting you up there. Why? Because up there is, is down here. It's one place. Okay? We say we lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Why do we say it is right to give him thanks and praise? We say that because we realize what John has realized. When he saw this throne and he saw God the Father sitting on it and the, and the whole cosmos and the angels giving him praise and adoration and everything he did, it is right to give him thanks and praise. That's why. Then he says, it is indeed right, it is our duty and our joy at all times, in all places, all times, all places, to give you thanks and praise, Holy Father, Heavenly King. This is not a prayer to Christ, is it? It's a prayer to God the Father. You notice? It is a prayer to God the Father. Almighty and eternal God, through Jesus Christ, your only Son, our Lord. For He is your living Word. Through Him you have created all things from the beginning and formed us in your own image. You have created... Why do we say that? Why do we invoke the creation? Because it is a liturgy of creation. We're joining with the angels. The angels were responsible for the whole cosmos, for all of creation, and we are joining with them in praising God the Father on His throne. That's what we do in this prayer. That's what you see in chapter 4 is that beginning of this Eucharistic prayer. And then what do we say right after this, this whole prayer? Therefore, with angels and archangels. Why do we invoke them there? Why do we invoke them there? Because it is a prayer of creation. It is giving God the glory for what He has created. The old creation and the new creation. As it says here, for He is your living Word, through Him you have created all things from the beginning, and formed us in your image, through Him you have freed us from the slavery of sin, giving Him to be born as man and to die upon the cross. You raised Him from the dead and exalted Him to your right hand. Through Him you have sent upon us your holy and living Spirit and made us a people for your own possession. Later we will see how all these people are going to show up and give praise to God, holding those palms. Okay? And then we say, therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. Huh. With all the company of heaven. Do you 
these words are not put here coincidentally or, coincidentally or simply because they sound good or make us feel good. This is reality. This is where we are. We are where John is. With all the company of heaven. All of them. We proclaim your great and glorious name forever praising you and saying, Holy, Holy, Holy. And what do we do right after we sing this? In Latin rite? We kneel. We kneel. What happens right after this chapter? God the Father holds a scroll in his hand. We're going to, show in we're going to see it in chapter 5. And then the Lion of Judah comes. And what does he look like? A lamb as though slain. What are we entering? The liturgy of the Eucharist. The Eucharistic prayer. Okay? The liturgy of the Word starts in part 1. And now we are entering the liturgy of the Eucharist. The difference is that Christ is revealing to us what that liturgy does. He's kind of lifting up the hood and saying, you know, you want to know what I gave you? Do you want to know what power I put in your hands? You know what you can do? Let me show you. You think that's important? If you go back and read those letters, I'll close with this, if you go back and read those letters, you will see that every time Christ is saying, I'm coming soon. Behold, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. Well, there are two meanings to it. Number one, I'm coming soon because I'm coming in the liturgy. And number two, I'm coming soon because in that specific instance, the liturgy is going to bring those fruits in the form of a judgment. How is the world judged? Through the liturgy. Why do you think communists and atheists want to outlaw the liturgy? Because they sense where the real power is. But these days, they don't, they don't have to outlaw it. Catholics are doing a fine job. Thank you very much. It isn't in the minds of Catholics to sit down and study the liturgy. It isn't in the minds of Catholics to pray the Lord for a greater love of the liturgy. It isn't in the minds of Catholics to ask the Lord to enlighten them about the liturgy. It is the last thing they will think of. They don't need somebody to come and outlaw the liturgy. They're doing a good job. And then they wonder why their lives aren't changing. That's the importance of this book. That is the hidden power that this book is unlocking for us. Make us conscientious. Make us realize what happens during Mass. So that through the eyes of faith, we could see the liturgy from heaven and what the liturgy provokes on earth if we were to live it the way we ought to. That's what we are all called to do. That's why this book is important. The last point, a couple of additional points. Why does John go up? Because as Christ said, his kingdom is not from this world. Therefore, his kingdom is the only kingdom fit to rule this world. Because nothing in this world can destroy it. Um, a French... Um, um, a French... Uh, uh, authors points out, his name is uh, uh, Bridgent, points out that Revelation 4-5 bears a striking likeness in structure to the synagogue morning liturgy where they used to celebrate God as creator and celebrate the law and God as its author 
which includes celebration of God's direction of Israel's salvation history, thanksgiving for Israel's deliverance from Egypt to the Passover land, which is associated with a new song, and celebrating the Passover redemption. By the way, you know how many people receive communion and then takes out? They, they don't get it, do they? And many people don't sing the last hymn. As soon as the priest gives them the last absolution, they're on their way. Hopefully, this will change because there is a new song being sung here at the end of all of this. It is a song of rejoicing. What I'm going to do next time is get you into the biblical background of all of this. We'll look at Daniel 7, we'll look at Ezekiel 1 and 2, and then we'll look at Isaiah. Because those background, those, those, this, these three passages will help us understand the historical circumstances that are provoking all of this. We need to understand why is Christ revealing this to John when he does, so that we can understand how to apply it in our own time. But I'd like you to do between today and next week, when you go back home, reread those two chapters, one through four, and focus on the liturgy. And just ask the Lord to help you gain a greater appreciation for the liturgy, not as we see it, but as He sees it. So that your prayer may become what it's supposed to be, a life-changing event for you and for the world. God bless you. We have some time for questions. So before we say prayers, if there are questions related to this particular study, we can take them now. Yes. No. No, they don't. You're right. That's what it's a, in a sense, it's a, it's a tragedy. Because really, a good Protestant who is going to be saved and make it to heaven through the agency and the graces of the church is in a sense forfeiting the graces that God and the glory that God had for him initially. Because had he been in the church, he would have received so many, so many more graces than being out and kind of being pulled in, uh, kicking and screaming, so to speak, by the church. Uh, yes. The point that is being made is we have Catholics who are not getting the graces, but that's why, that's why the first part is so important for us, because Christ is walking among the seven churches, and what do, we, what do we find in those seven churches? Just a bunch of saints? No. More often than not, people busily working and destroying the church. All right? That's the reality of the church on earth. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't find it strange. We should be sad. We should, we should be... Um, upset about it in the sense that it's robbing people away from God, but we shouldn't be scandalized or shocked. That's how it's going to be. Yes. Very good question. Why is it 24 elders? A um, couple of reasons. The first one is that during the celebration of the liturgy in the temple, there were 24 courses of priesthood. All right? So it represents the totality of the priesthood. Therefore, Essentially, what you see from the perspective of heaven is the mass celebrated across all the earth. It's one mass. Even though it happens at different times, it still is one mass because it is, one mass because it is so in heaven. All right? Any other question? Very well. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. 
For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.